Space Makers podcast is about shining a light on people who open the doors for others. They see the light in somebody and they make the room for that light to shine. I'm Kathy Pierre, and this is a Space Makers podcast. author, podcaster, host, three <laughs> albums, stand-up comedian, Kamal. First of all, when did you have the time to do all of this? Secondly, how does it feel? Oh, these are very, these are sort of intertwined. Um, so when did I find the time to do all this? I remember Chris Rock said, I heard him on an interview, I think it was on Bill Maher saying, if you want to make more money, get married. If you want to make more money than that, have a kid. If you want to make more money than that, have a second kid. And what that really means is that your level of hustle starts to go up the more the more people depend on you or the more people you feel like depend on you. Uh, Melissa obviously can take care of herself, but the more you feel like I should provide for my family. So, you know, I've, I've been doing comedy since I started doing comedy in 1994. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I was just sort of fumbling around, like not didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't trying to figure out how to say what I wanted to say. Also, I don't, I don't think there, the industry wasn't really, there wasn't a place for me like there is now, like there is for comedians who I think feel the way I feel now. Uh, so by the time I met you, I had started to go, okay, I think I know what I want to do now. So right. I feel like by the time that Melissa went to grad school, that our conversation when she went to grad school, I was like, either I, I was like, I was thinking about moving to New York because I was like, I need to really kick this up another notch. And Melissa goes, I'm going to grad school in Southern California. We lived in the, the Bay Area. I was in San Francisco. She was in Oakland. And so at that point, I was like, okay, we both can't leave. If I go to New York and you go to Southern California, that just felt like that's the end. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to stay in San Francisco and dig in deep and try to, as I said to myself at the time, I'm going to try to become the king of San Francisco comedy, which is just my way of saying, like, I want the city to know I'm here in a way they don't know now. Yeah. And so when I, so when Melissa went to grad school and, and, and around the time that we met, I was really like in the process of like making myself into more than I had been before. Like I started doing my own solo show, renting theaters, making posters, paying for posters, which pay, writing press releases, all sorts of stuff I'd never done before. And those are skills that have translated to this day that I still sort of go, that's I was like my own professional boot camp. Uh, yeah. So, and then, you know, me and Melissa got married in 2009. We have Sammy in 2011. And 2011 is when I first got my first TV show. Because again, I think I was just like, I got to make stuff happen. Yeah. <laughs> like I got to like, and so, and not that I did it. You know, a lot of people helped. A lot of people helped, and I had luck. Uh, but as as I always learned, luck is the residue of design. So um, yeah. So then it just became about like, you know, as me and my friend Jason would say, my best friend since high school, strike while the iron is lukewarm. So when there are <laughs> things like when you success breeds more success, and so I, I'm always like sort of a little bit panicked that this is all going to go away. So I'm always trying to like take on new things that I think are worth my time that I also feel like can also help me provide for my family. So it's a lot. Okay. So in that strive, like struggle and strife and trying to provide when you did your first album, which is, I think, I don't know if people do that as much anymore. I mean, I know I have old albums from comedians that my parents loved back in the day. Mm -hmm. When you did your first album and that and hit that milestone, 
who helped you with that? Who was the who was the person, or did you just do it on your own and like figure? No, it out? no. First of all, nothing. I just want to be very clear. Nothing happens on anybody's own. <laughs> like you know, like, like, like podcast. Like, yeah. So there's no, there's no, there's no. As much as I can talk about the work that I did, but like, there's there's any number of people that I can point to. Like with my one man show, my friend Bruce Packman, who worked, it was an independent theater producer, like set that up for me. Like he really like had already had the relationships, and I learned from him how to do some write press releases, title make titles, posters. So yeah. So but with the album, I mean that album came out of like. I had, this is dead technology. I had a mini disc recorder, which was a thing that before we had phones that recorded voice memos. I had a mini disc recorder. That was the thing every comic had for a while to record their sets because they, they were digital, they sounded good. And it was my first time ever headlining at the punchline. So if I'm going to talk about the punchline, that was a, one of the clubs, two clubs in San Francisco that gave me a lot of stage time. They treated me like I was a member of the family. Mm. I, I made it, formed a lot of still lifelong relationships out of that club, even though the club is closed now and I haven't been there in years. Uh. But like, so that club became a place that I felt very comfortable. Molly Schmink was the booker, still is the booker. Um, and all the people who worked there. So I became comfortable enough that they were like, and good enough, they're like, we're gonna let you headline for a night at the punchline, which is a big deal. And, and you headline your home club, it's probably a Wednesday. They don't give you a good night the first time, but it was still, <laughs> and so, you know, this I invited all my friends and supporters and try sold it out and and really again you're sort of like trying to like I need to make more of myself and believe in myself and just put the main disc recorder on the stage next to me to document my first headlining gig, and after it was over, I was sort of listening to it, and a good friend of mine, Kevin Avery, who we also went through that same process of like oh we need to take this career more seriously and now he's won multiple Emmys and is a writer producer in Hollywood. Uh, he was like, this sounds like it could be an album. Like, I think it was him saying that we were roommates at the time. And I was like, really? And then I gave it to another friend, Matt Morales, who was also an addition meeting comedian, was an audio engineer, trained audio engineer. And so he sat down and mixed it and pulled out every time I set my glass down on the table and it made a big noise and like, and, and then it was like, oh, I need artwork. So I went to my friend Lee Han, who was a graphic designer who had designed the bell curve posters and he and I had this pitch for him and he did it and he put it together. And then it's like, oh, I need to print up the CDs. I knew somebody who had had CD. So it's like, none of that happened on my own. It was just like the community of people I had built around me were all happy to sort of like contribute. And not even, Kevin didn't know he was telling me to release my album. He was just like, this sounds like, he was like sort of just impressed with how good it sounded. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, so I basically bootlegged myself is what that album is. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I started this podcast. I mean, you've named Bruce, you've named Kevin, you've named all these people. And I find in the industry now, because we're so focused on influencers and people coming out of nowhere, I'm like, no, just like it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to become successful. Oh, yeah. People doing like favors for you, left, right, and center, and whether that was editing for you mm -hmm. or whatever. And, and those are the stories that I'm sort of interested in. Um, and speaking of your, your Bell Curve show, um, specifically was that a punchline and the space makers for that what how did that come about no because it was really when i started when i really conceived the idea of doing that show oops that was a lot of noise uh it's, it's hard to control all the notifications <laughs> and they're important especially yeah, they, so. yeah so uh yeah so when i started when i realized i wanted to do a one-person show which i had I had already been involved in the solo show scene in San Francisco through my friend Bruce. I'd actually, I'd actually taught, taught like I, I directed his show because he was like, can you help me with this? And I ended up being a director. 
through Bruce, he was like, set up classes for me to teach because he was basically like, I can't pay you because I don't have the money, but I can set up classes for you to teach and that will pay you. <laughs> so like, I was like, sure. That ended up going really well. So I, I was, that was like really how I made money for many, for several years. Uh, stand up wasn't paying as it wasn't paying a living wage. Mm -hmm. And then when I decided to do this solo show, I knew that I couldn't do it in the club because I was like, I want a projector, I want a screen, I want audio and video. Like I knew all, I wanted all these things. And you can't, the punchline is not set up for that stuff for the most part. It's really a, it's a classic stand up comedy club, tiny stage, you know, just a microphone and a performer. Right. Oh, so, <laughs> and so, but luckily because of Bruce and because of the work I'd done with Bruce, we had an in at this theater called the Shelton Theater, Matt Shelton, who's the owner operator of the Shelton Theater. And so I'd done a lot of classes and a lot of things with Matt Shelton. And he just happened to have a show in that was that was renting his theater, but didn't want Thursday nights. Like they just did. And so he had Thursday nights available, which for anybody who's a performer, Thursday night is a great night to do something. It's like, cause it's, as the as the comedian David Tell said, it's baby Friday. <laughs> like, so it's like- It's prime. It's a night when people, so, like mostly you don't get Thursday night when you're trying out a new thing you get you get Sunday morning you don't get Thursday <laughs> night and so I had this great night and I had this idea for a show and also Matt Shelton allowed me to pay him out of the receipts so I didn't have to come up with money off the top I could pay him once I made my money which to me made me feel better about it because what if I don't make any like I don't so I don't have to come up with money up front so maybe I don't make any money, but I don't have to pay that money until later. <laughs> like I don't have to figure yeah, it out until later. Need the capital to start. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, but because I'd done things with him and had a long relationship with him. So he just sort of, we had built equity, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, and so we did it. We did it the first time we did it, it was sold out. And then it was like, we started doing it like every Thursday. And then it was like, and then it, we started doing it once a week on Thursdays. It was first, it was, it was for Thursday, it's for a month. It was like, once a month on Thursday, and then it was once a week on Thursday, and then eventually we moved to another theater and did it three times a week, the Climate Theater, which is no longer. Uh, and that's where I sort of like picked up the, like started doing three times a week, and that's when it sort of like, I started taking it to LA and all sorts of other things. But yeah, it really started from like, I knew Bruce, Bruce was a friend of mine, Matt Shelton had a theater, he, he had a good night open, you know, without that, the show doesn't exist in the same way. So Matt and Bruce are your space makers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Among, among many others, but they were, they were. Yeah, like Bruce really, I think if we're going to, Bruce really has, was a consistent force. Matt's a great dude who owned a theater who I had a good relationship with, you know, like, so I think it's like, everybody doesn't have to be your best friend. <laughs> like, you know, like, it's yeah, like, absolutely. like Bruce was like, we were like in the, we were in it together in the, I would do stuff for him. He would do stuff for me. We would work on other people's thing. It was like, we sort of had a little crew for a while. And then Matt, we, because we were doing all this good stuff for Matt, and I don't, I'm not taking anything away from Matt. I just want to be clear that Matt was like a, the, a, a, a good theater owner, a nice business owner, which you don't always have in performance, but the people who own the spot are also nice people. Yeah, absolutely. He still opens the door. Like that. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Without yeah. that, we're just talking. We're just yammering. Right. Um, so was full, am I getting this right? Face full for full? Face full of flour? Face full of flour. There you go. I was like, nope, that's not it. Face full yeah. of flour. <laughs> Um, yeah. Was that a turning point being recognized in, you know, best top 10 best comedy albums? Was that a, was that a, like, again, it's, it's about space makers. So yeah. I did my own album. A, a, like, this was the early days of like sort of internet content. So we're talking about 
you know, the 2010s, like the early 2010s, uh, the late aughts early. So my first album came out, I think 2009 or something. Mm -hmm. And then 2011, there was a, an early, one of the early sort of con, there were all these like content companies that were coming into the Bay area and they would all go, we need comedians. And so they'd find, they'd come to the punchline and they'd find, they'd give us things to do, or there's ways for us to make money, write things for us. And so there was always this sort of like new content company in town. And this was rooftop. They came to town, but they actually made a big splash and actually made some good content and got a lot of comedians jobs. And I had started forming a relationship with them and they were like, we want to sell your album on our website, which I was like, Ooh, great. So they wanted to sell my first album, uh, one nig only, which was the name of it. It's, just, it's a visual joke. Doesn't work if you hear it. Uh, one night only. And, uh, and so they went, they were like, we want to sell your album on our website. And I was like, that's great. But it was like two years old. I was like, but I'd, I really would rather do a new album if we're going to start selling if you, if you think this is going to sell. And they were like, okay. So then I, they paid for the recording of that album and the distributing of that album. And that allowed me to record face full of flower which in a more professional way with like, you know, with an actual, not just a mini disc recorder, but they had microphones hang, hung throughout the room. Up. And you moved up? I moved up. I You're moved right. up. All right. And, you know, also got to like a friend of mine who took the cover art for that, who was a, a, a photographer I met named Elizabeth Allen at the time, who I met on MySpace, which was back in the Ooh. day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the MySpace era. In a in a in a in a chaste way. Let me be clear about that. In a, <laughs> MySpace was messy. I, we were. We, she was a fan of me and Kevin Kevin Avery's. Uh, uh, we had a thing called Siskel and Negro movie review show. Uh, so she so she took the picture. So it's like you get so you get to give work to people who you, who are who are just talented who are happy to do it. But she you know and and so that became and that also that album really. I Obama had become president. I'd worked on all this material during the solo show. So I had like a, my first real political takes on the world were on that album. Like my first sort of like, the first album was race and race and maybe a teeny bit of politics, but this album was actually like, here's my thoughts about the current political situation America's in. Um, and so that sort of helped separate me from other black comedians and other comedians. And iTunes named it one of the top 10 albums of the year for comedy, which was so great. And at that point it was like, I couldn't have imagined that was the thing that would have happened. That was back when iTunes was iTunes, you know. Like, <laughs> so you couldn't find music on anything else. Yeah, there was no other. But that's why iTunes was the only game in town. <laughs> Thankfully, they are not anymore. But yeah, that was back when it like, you know, I don't even know what if yeah, I don't even know what they're doing with comedy albums now. But you know, but anyway, so that it like it gave me a credit, which is important to have, and also all those credits let people in the positions of power know you're a real person. You know, I was just talking to somebody else about this, like. Or Sarah Silverman. I was talking to Sarah Silverman about this on my other podcast. Uh, uh, I said my other podcast, like I had several. On my podcast, Politically Reactive. I've had several. <laughs> on my podcast, Politically Reactive, about like, she always tells young comedians, don't go look for agents and managers, just get good. And getting good means suddenly iTunes says you have one of the top 10 albums. Suddenly I have like the San Francisco Chronicle saw the bell curve and said this nice thing. And suddenly you have a little bit of a press kit and then people in showbiz sort of think, oh, you must actually be something we should pay attention to. So that's sort of like, that was one of those critical moments. So yeah, Faceful Flower happened through uh, Rooftop, uh, which is now I think a, a wholly owned subsidiary of Amazon. I think Amazon bought them. So they got the, they, they got the, they got the cash out. But uh, yeah, so that was where that came about. And then, you know, Elizabeth Allen who took the photos and 
and you know i was really happy the great thing about doing albums is you could get to write down all the thank yous so i was happy that I, you know it's fun to sort of like make that list until you for, until you, i forgot my friend jeremy and he's like how'd you forget me <laughs> so but, but anyway, jeremy, we haven't forgotten you he's mentioning you on he, here he knows we see him regularly <laughs> during our pandemic social distance play dates but yeah so yeah so that was definitely what happened with face that was how faithful a flower came to be Wonderful. Again, recorded at the punchline because they, at that point, I was actually headlining the whole week instead of just one night. So it's like they start to see that I'm doing good work. They have more trust in me. So yeah, I got to headline the whole week for that one. That's that's beautiful. And you get to try out the work a few different times. So it feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first one was just yeah. one, one night headlining. And yeah. the second one, I think it was two shows that we put together. Yeah. Nice. So was Prominent Negro your- Semi-Prominent Negro. Semi-Prominent Negro. Yeah. Was it your, was that your I have arrived moment? Was that my what? I have arrived moment. I mean, that was, that was the, the, the audio release from a, my Showtime comedy special. So that was definitely like every comedian wants a special. Yeah. I got a special on Showtime. Uh, and that came through uh, and it was directed by a guy who I had a lot of respect for Morgan Spurlock, who's done supersize me and other things. And so he, so I got the hat, he directed it. He'd never directed a comedy special before. So it was sort of fun. Uh, Michelle Armour, who had been a producer on the Chappelle show, helped produce the special, uh, has always believed in me since the days of Totally Biased. And so, yeah, we got to fly to New York and go to this cool venue that nobody had ever recorded a special in before and record that special. And then out of that, we sort of, they, we turned the audio into the album Semi-Prominent Negro, which is great because as much as everything right now is comedy special and, and video, the album industry is not is nowhere near what it used to be. I really like that idea of like you can actually just listen to it. You don't have to, you don't have to watch it. You can actually just listen to it. Uh, so yeah, that was definitely like a big deal. And also that was after Totally Bias had been canceled. So it felt like this is a way to sort of like I'm I'm still I still exist. I'm still I still get to I still get to be in the industry. So speaking of uh, Totally Bias, so when that got canceled, did you have that moment of like? maybe this isn't it. Did you want to quit? What was it? What was the feeling around around that? Yeah, I had that. Yes, I had that moment. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, sort of, I was thinking that moment. And have you ever seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? For sure. Okay. I, you know, you never know where these movies stop with generations. But uh, <laughs> the line that goes through my mind is when Cameron goes to Egypt land, let my Cameron go. <laughs> like it's Cameron in bed, like just totally like, wiped out by the like all the expectations of life and how he can't meet them that was my that's how i feel about that post totally biased time i was like i may be you know i may be out of show business i may be too stained by the failure of that show because it was a pretty public failure it was a very public failure mm -hmm. i know black folks get their tv shows canceled and they're never heard from again you know like it's just like yeah. it's yeah. just so i thought this could be it and you know i, th I think again at the time Melissa certainly was there for me. Sammy, my daughter was there. And so mm -hmm. it, that's the time when it's helpful to have a family to sort of to look at you and realize you're not just what your career is. But, you know, we were living in New York in an apartment that was that the rent was for a guy who had a TV show, not for a guy who was unemployed. So we had to figure out what to do next. And then Melissa got pregnant with Juno and it just became like very clear to us. We had to move back to the Bay Area where we had a support system and a network and friendly faces. So talk about Totally Bias, how, who was instrumental in, in your Totally Bias failing forward moment? I mean, I wouldn't have Totally Bias without Chris Rock. Chris Rock saw me do the bell curve in New York. 
Uh, I didn't know him. I knew people who knew him because the comedy industry is small. But he came, he snuck into the back. I didn't know he was there. And then afterwards, he came backstage. And, you know, Chris Rock is one of my favorites of all time. So, you know, even though I knew famous comedians, I was starstruck by Chris Rock. And every every comedian is starstruck by Chris Rock just because he's just, he's an icon of that stature in our industry and in the comedy world. And he came back and was like, oh, it was funny. Yeah, it's good. It's good. You know, like, I, I, I like, I think eight people are funny. You're one of the eight. All right, man. See you later. But then he called me and over time helped me get this uh, show on FX uh, called Totally Bias, which now sounds very regular, but at the time it was like a daily show style uh, attack on the news show hosted by a black guy, which now that was before the daily show was hosted by a black guy and before Samantha B and before John Oliver and Hassan Minhaj and sort of like at that sort of the idea that there can be more than one person doing that show was not the case when I did it. So the thing about Totally Bias, it was hard I always say it was like that the, that show ended like the end of a Vietnam War movie where everybody who survived just sort of went their own separate directions and like didn't talk anymore. Like it was because oh. I had a lot of friends who I hired on the show and it's great to work with your friends, but it's not great to be your friend's boss. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a lot of things that didn't survive that show. Luckily, some relationships got stronger. Mm-hmm. Me and Hari, who were on that show together, still do Politically Reactive, our podcast, and are still great friends. Um, and yeah, but it was like, you know, so I tried to like bring my NBA posse with me. I tried to sort of Allen Iverson with it, bring all the, or, or LeBron James, it bring the whole crew. And I should have, LeBron James did a better job than I did. <laughs> so, like, so, which, uh, so yeah, it was just sort of like, it was a lot. It was, it was on for about a year. It started out being once a week, which was sort of like getting our sea legs. Then they made it every, four days a week, which was just too much too fast. And mm-hmm. I had never been on TV regularly and I just didn't have the, the, you know, it's like, it's like, you can be a great natural basketball player, but you need to train to go to the Olympics, you know, like you can. So, and I think it was like that, like I, maybe I had some natural skills that were good there, but I needed some training to get there that I didn't have. You did, Cause you're now a five time Emmy award winner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, so, that so, I've now so had a lot had, more reps. It was there. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, uh, skills. I'm not trying to say that, but it yeah. definitely was like, like when I look at the shows that, like when you look at Samantha B, uh, John Oliver, Hassan Minhaj, all three of them went to Daily Show University. And so they got some real reps in how to do that before they went off and did their own thing. And I, I like, I felt like if I had just been able to be an intern at the Daily Show for a summer, I would have picked up something, you know what I mean? So, but yeah, so it's like, it is, it is a, it is a, uh, yeah, it was, and you know, I, I'm not complaining about the opportunity, but I certainly look back and go, here's how I would have wished it had gone differently, which also lets give me, puts me in a better position to mentor other people about like, make sure you, you get your reps in, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I never asked you if you were part of the executive uh, production team with Totally Bias, but I know you are um, on the production team of, of, uh, United Shades of America. America. So in that respect, one, did that happen right away? Tell mm-hmm. me the journey on, on this one, because mm-hmm. that is what you're doing on the show is incredible. Um, you're having very tough conversations, which is, which is it, the respect that I have for what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say and what you're trying to teach is far none. So how did that come about? Was it your idea? Whose idea was it? Mm-hmm. Who helped? Who helped 
opened those doors or gave you a hammer and like, you know, broke that glass ceiling for you in terms of executive production so you can have control over your content. Well, first of all, to be clear, the only reason I think I'm an executive producer, I was an executive producer from the beginning by title on United Shades of America. And I only think that happened because I'd been an executive producer on Totally Biased because Chris Rock made me an executive producer. Like he, he had the power to decide yes or no on that. And he decided yes, because I think he, I know he understands how important it is to have executive level input into these things that I wasn't just talent, that they were sort of betting on me and to give me more voice in the room and to give me a louder voice in the room, I need to be an executive producer. So when I got to United Shades, I was the executive producer from the top, which is a big deal. It doesn't mean that every other executive producer listens to you, though. Ah. You're a black guy who they feel like is new still, even though he had a TV show. Mm. So the first year of the first season of that, and I've talked about this before, was really a struggle for a couple reasons. One, I didn't feel like I was being taken that seriously by the by the other by the by the other exec who was in charge. Two, uh, I was the only black person who worked on the show in any sort of lead role. So we're doing a show about, and I was also the only person of color who worked on the show in the lead role, like, you know, so we're doing this show about inclusion and and celebrating diversity. And I would sometimes be out in the field with a question and I don't have anybody to talk to, but Google, you know what I mean? Cause it's like, you all don't know, you don't have the input on this the way that I need you to have it. Like, so we're doing a show about the clan and then I'm hanging out with a bunch of white guys who I just met who are the crew of the show. And I need to talk to some black people. Like I need to be able to sort of like, and so over the course of the shows, we're filming our sixth season right now, over the course of the last few years, every season, I, you know, it's like you accrue more power, you get more respect. Also winning Emmys helps because people take you more seriously. We've done a good job for CNN. Uh, So yeah, so it's like, you know, it's still, there's still struggles because it's still, it's making art in a commercial environment, which is not easy. I think of the show as art, but it also, it has to be 42 minutes long because it's a commercial environment. So it can't be 43 minutes long. It can't be 41 minute long. Like it's gotta be, so every episode has to be, and, and it has to have commercial breaks. So, but also that means that more people see it than if I was just making it on my computer. Right. Uh, Cause I, w- I don't have the skills to make it as good as this. So yeah, so the, when the show was brought to me, it was already had been sold to CNN as for a pilot. It was called Black Man, White America. Right. And yeah, and it was just supposed to be a black, a black comedian traveling to white spaces. And I still don't know how, I think the all the sort of tumult of totally bias made me go, I cannot step into another thing that I feel like isn't right, even though I need this job. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I was like, I wouldn't do that. I was just very like, I wouldn't do that. Like, I mean, it's like, I'm just gonna be a black man talking to white people every week. Like, I, I was like, I live in the Bay Area. They will not let me leave my house if they're like, oh, white people are what's important. We got to learn about white people. And so I said, no, I would only do it if it was more, more than just white people. And at the time, CNN's slogan it may still be was called go there and i was like i would only do it if it was lots of different types of people and it was called don't go there and so that made them laugh although they weren't going to name a show don't go there (laughs) but like so (laughs) but like and then the producer uh jimmy fox who is the who is the head executive on the show who's not the producer i'm talking about he jimmy was is was is great uh at that point somebody on his side changed the show to united shades of america and uh that became the like and that even that title made it sound better than black man white america or even don't go there it's like it sounds like something that you want to watch as opposed to something that you're being dared to watch yeah and it sounds inclusive yeah it sounds inclusive like (laughs) and i don't yeah and i don't even know i still don't know who came up with the title maybe it was jimmy but yeah it just sounds 
on brand for an America we didn't even know we wanted necessarily at that point. But now every day it's like, yeah, we need to figure out how to do this. Exactly. So they pitched it to you. Mm -hmm. So who was that person that said, hey, we have a show for you? Well, it was Jimmy pitched it to Jimmy Fox pitched it to CNN. CNN was like, do you have a black comedian in mind? I think Jimmy did not. I think from what I understand, Amy Intellis, who was my boss at CNN, who's the who's a VP of vice president of, I don't even know what her title is. She's she's right under Jeff Zucker. Jeff's the main at CNN, CNN. But Amy is great. She's been in, huh? This is a pretty important lady. Yo, she's super important. There's no question. Yeah. <laughs> Amy is like, Amy's been in, in broadcast news like for over 30 years. She is a real G. <laughs> like she is like Amy is not. She will. She will. She will cut you with the word or lift you up with the word. And I appreciate her clearness, her clarity. I never. I'm always. And also, she's very. She's been very. She's been very good for to work with in a way. It's great to be at a time when like the industry was falling around around uh, like about times up and there's not enough powerful women. I at CNN I was like surrounded by powerful women and I was just like. Well, aren't I lucky? <laughs> you know, so like uh, Heather Brown, who's a publicist CNN, who's also a black woman, has been like basically like my lead blocker. And like Heather will not put me out there for some publicity that's bullshit. She gets me from very early on. We had a conversation because I did some. She, I was doing some some press, and it was like it was with a black outlet that was like basically didn't think I was black enough. Was how it came across. Mm. And I said to Heather, look, I, I know we just met, but I just have to be honest, I'm kind of what a lot of black people think is corny. So like if so we just have to be careful about where I go and what to expect. And she's like, I get you. And she and so from that point forward, we've been in in, in unison. Uh, but yeah, so it's like so uh, Amy was apparently Amy or someone at CNN said, well, what about this guy, Kamau Bell, who was on Totally Bias because he's a black guy who talks about politics. Uh, cause they, they basically seen it was like, we need somebody who actually knows how to talk about politics. If they're going to be on our network and knows. And so <laughs> I wrote about this in my book. So CNN came up with me, Jim, uh, Jimmy Fox said, sure. Then I had a meeting at CNN when they were still, th they were still thinking about it where I actually met with Jeff Zucker, who Jeff Zucker is a legendary show business figure. He is, uh, there's two books about the late night comedy wars where like basically the whole Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno thing. Jeff was the exec who was like moving Conan here and Jay Leno here. And so he is, he's well known. Puppet but master. Now he, huh? He's puppet master. You say? Puppet master. Yeah, master. <laughs> yeah, he's the puppet master. Jeff is definitely a puppet master. <laughs> and so I had a meeting with him and the, in the meeting, he's like, so, you know, you pay attention to current events and politics. And I go, yeah. And he goes, okay. And he goes, here's a test. And he started quizzing me on current events. <laughs> Which is just, you got it right. <laughs> I, well, the funny—I mean, the funny thing was, it was like it was basically—I mean, just like you know, I had the—I think I already had the CNN app on my phone because it was just a news app or something. But it was all things that like were on the CNN app, and I was like, yeah, I just read those like ten minutes ago. <laughs> like, so it's just like you know, it was all the current events of the day, and also some things that are so big at the time. Like, like if you lived in New York, you could not know about the the uh, Bridgegate and Christie, like things that were just like, well, of course, you know. Right. Uh, but yeah, I passed the news quiz and, uh, and, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, I'm laughing, but like, I think if I hadn't passed it, Jeff would have thought differently about me. So, you know, so sometimes you got to pass the test, even if it feels funny. Uh, but yeah, so Jeff, Amy, but Amy and has been with a woman named Lizzie Fox, who is now at HBO max, but like really 
was the person I could call at any point and really confided in from early on about how I wasn't happy with the direction of the show. And, and Lizzie was in, it was in, was like, uh, was the word I'm looking for, not inspirational. Uh, she was key. I'll just say that Lizzie was key to the show moving from one production company to 0.0, which is where the show's at now, which is the production company that made all of Anthony Bourdain's shows. So in last season she was, was instrumental the first and she was influenced. Yeah, she was instru instrumental. I talked to her, she was talking to them. Bourdain had passed away. So there was this sort of like, they were looking for a new project. I was like, I'm not happy with this production company. She, it was very clear to everyone how much love I had for Bourdain. So she's the one who sort of connected those pieces. And so, yeah, so I got a shout out to Lizzie Fox, who she, mm -hmm. she got promoted, which makes me angry to this day because <laughs> she was so good. <laughs> she was so good. She was too good. Right. So I have uh, some fun, crazy questions for you that are less, well, they're still career oriented. But so one is, um, what was your best bad decision? Best bad decision. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. So many bad decisions. <laughs> Around my career? Around your career. Yeah, keep, keep it in, in that vein. I think not moving to LA or New York was clearly a bad, like you, it wouldn't have made sense at the time. Like there was no industry in San Francisco. How are you gonna make it out of, how are you gonna make it out of San Francisco? Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I just don't wanna, I was just like, I felt like I need to stay here. And at the time, you, nobody would have said that I was making a good decision. Cause there was no such thing as becoming known in San Francisco at that point, there's, or no point to it. Why would you become known here? Right. So that was a great, I, like, that was a decision I feel like feels very Kamau. Like, I only I would make that decision. Like, fame and fortune are over there. I'm going to stay here. And so, like, <laughs> I think that that was a, that not moving when Melissa got to grad school. Because it was scary. I'm not saying it wasn't scary, but it was a great bad decision. Okay. Um, what's your significant fork in the road? Significant fork in the road? After Totally Bias getting canceled and going... Well, now that I'm in New York, I should stay in New York because this is where fame and fortune is. Mm -hmm. Or we can go back to the Bay Area. So me and Melissa had to talk about that a lot because I was like, if I go back to the Bay Area, I could just fall off the face of the earth again in show business because there's there's no, I can't get bigger in San Francisco again. I can't make a living as a comedian in San Francisco. Uh, I'm going to have to be traveling a lot. So if we do, whatever we do to go back, I'm going to be on the road a lot because that's where the all the opportunity and the money is. So. That was a real big, like it felt, that felt like it was probably a bad decision, but we didn't have a choice. It felt like we needed to be with our friends and family and be in a familiar place after the two years of New York with Totally Biased. So that felt like this could be a real bad decision. <laughs> like this could be, I could be basically admitting defeat right here. Okay. Um, do you have a Simon Cowell, Gordon Ramsay, Anna Wintour moment, tough love mentor that just, is always in your corner in a weird off kilter way because they just ride you with criticism constantly. I mean, it's the, I, Chris Rock is that person. Like, I don't talk to him that often because we sort of, we only formed a professional relationship. I mean, he's definitely somebody I can reach out to. And I was lucky enough to, he agreed to let me direct a documentary about his big comedy special, Bring the Pain, that, that uh, is one of my proud career achievements. <laughs> uh, that nobody saw because it was on a &E and they were just advertising that police show that they have. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but it's on Amazon prime. But so Chris is not, does not suffer fools gladly is not going to sort of like 
hold your feelings in the light. <laughs> it's like he's gonna he's gonna tell you what he feels, and it doesn't mean that he's always correct, but it means you're gonna know how he feels. So totally biased was a lot of time of him being very clear with me about what he felt like I could improve, and I'm just you know so it was hard because I was also like I don't even know what I'm doing, and he's like yeah it's clear, uh, but he also like. If he doesn't open that door, I don't think I, I don't, my career, he's always very clear about like, you would have made it somehow because you have talent. But I just know that there's like, I don't, I wouldn't be where I'm at now and I would be somewhere else. Maybe I'd be fine, but like he opened that door. So I always have to sort of like, remember it, it you know, once you get through that door, it's not always fun. You want to sort of celebrate getting through the door, but then the work begins. So yeah, Chris is somebody who, if I call him right now, he will answer. He'll ask me what I'm doing and he'll tell me what he thinks about it. Like, yeah, so, which is, you need those. Which is great to have. You need yeah. those. You need yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. Is there anybody that taught you about betrayal in the industry? Betrayal in the industry. I I I am I'm I there's like sometimes you feel like I'm in rarefied air to be able to regularly be in the room when Dave Chappelle came back from South Africa and hear him talk about what he had gone through with Comedy Central, like people are talking about that thing he just said recently about Comedy Central. I used to go hang out at those shows because he would, he loves the Punchline Comedy Club. So he would come there and do like two weeks in a row of shows, three weeks in a row of shows. And because I was at that point in at the Punchline, I could just go. Like I get, I, sometimes I was opening for him, but if I wasn't, they would just, I would just walk through. They'd be like, no comedians can come in for this show. It's too packed. Hey, come on, go on in. No comedians can come in. Like, so like I had like earned my, my spot. Uh, so to be in the room and hear him talk about how he felt like the industry, Comedy Central had done him wrong. Uh, how he thought the industry was hard, was hard on black folks. How he thought, how he sort of built this web of like, look at what they did to Mariah Carey, Martin Lawrence, like to be in the room as he's thinking about that was really like, you know, I'll never forget it. And it was some of the best stand up I'd ever seen. And so like, yeah, like that was, that was rarefied air. That's like people who like, I saw Jimi Hendrix when he first got to England, you know what I mean? It's just like some, like some really like nobody's ever, I think he recorded all those things. I don't know if he'll ever use them, but also the context will be different because to be to know that every comedy fan in the country wanted to know what Dave Chappelle thought, and I was in that room regularly, was definitely, and to hear him talk about the industry was really, I'll never forget that. You don't have to name names, but have you ever been betrayed this far? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, you, showbiz is, I was, it's founded by reprobates, pirates, and criminals. Like, it's just not- but We love it, people, but we love it. <laughs> yeah, we like, no, we love it, but it's just like, it, it's why there's all that scandal in show business because it's founded by scandalous people and it's founded by dreamers who want to live a life unlike regular folks. So they just sort of like, that means that there's a lot of shit that goes down that is like, this This wouldn't pass HR at a, at a, at a, at any other company. So it's like, I'm, yeah, this, this business is like filled with like, you have to sort of, you have to sort of, as they say, like, as there, there was that, the my mom had the sign in our house when I was a kid. She still has it in her house, in her apartment. But it was like about slave catchers in Boston, like like free black folks, black folks who escape slavery and go to Boston. You can't get there's not much more north in America than Boston, so you're out of the South. And yet, slave catchers would go to Boston and look for black folk, look for freed escaped slaves, or black folks who just look like they should be a slave. And they and it said, "Keep your top eye open." That was what it says. Keep your top eye open. Be aware of the slave catchers. And I always remember, like it's like you have to keep your top eye open because everybody sort of like gets into this business for their ego is a big part of this business it would have to be 
and everybody is sort of like looking out for themselves, which also makes sense. But you want to put people on your, you want to be surrounding yourself with people who you have similar goals so that like they can look out for themselves and you can look out for yourself. But part of looking out for yourself is looking out for them. So I think, yeah, certainly, you know, like there's any number of like, the first thing you learn as a comedian is that, you know, you can't really trust the club owner. You can't trust the booker. They're going to tell you they're going to book you. They don't book you. They're going to tell you you didn't pay this much money. They don't pay you that much money. Like the whole thing is sort of like managing, managing your own feelings around getting ripped off or betrayed. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, so definitely. I mean, I feel betrayed by the first producer on uh, United Shades. Like, and, and I've written about it. I don't say his name just because it is easy to find his name if you want to. But I'm not, I'm, I just don't, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, I'm not a rapper. I'm not battle rapping him. Like, so like, I'm just like, it's so you can go find it if you want to look it up, but it's not my, I think it's important to know that the system failed on that point and the system is failing lots of people. It ain't just that one person. I respect that. I respect that. No, and it's important for people to, to, to be aware and to go in, you know, eyes open and ready. Yeah. To confront whatever as they say it's called show business not show fun <laughs> like <it's, laughs> right? so it is not yeah you have to sort of like the you you go in for the fun but if you're going to stay in it you have to really know the business 100 100 so um this may seem like a weird question do you what's your totem so it's a symbol it's it's a it's part of the native american culture which i'm mm -hmm. sure you're aware of and it's, it's a spirit being, it's a sacred symbol, uh, something that represents your tribe or your ancestry. Do you have one? And if you do, what is it? Uh, let's see. I, I will say this, I don't know if it's my totem, but it's been with me, this, this, this being has been with me my whole life, not this particular version of it. It's actually sitting right here. Okay. Uh, so, but so in some sense, I feel like, and also it's, Juno, who the middle kid, the, the yeah. six-year-old identifies this with me. So this is the Hulk. Uh, the Hulk comes often comes with me on the road because Juno wants me to take him with me because she's like, this is your Hulk. As a kid, I used to watch the Hulk TV show yeah. and like pretend to be the Hulk. And so it's sort of funny to me. Like, it's, I think it's actually maybe even more important to Juno than it is to me. But as I sit here, it's sitting here on my desk. I think, I don't know if I put it here, or Juno put it here, but like, this is the first, like, so sort of the, the thing about the Hulk that I've always connected to is there's the sort of the dual nature of the person who is trying to control themselves and be a good person and gets pushed too hard and then has to hulk out and like if you wouldn't respect me then I'm going to make you respect me. <laughs> this is what the, and so and every black person, uh, Latinx person, indigenous person, uh, Asian person, Asian diaspora person, Pacific Islander knows that feeling of like I tried to be reasonable with you fools, <laughs> so now <it's, laughs> and you didn't respect it, so I'm going to have to hulk out. So yes, I would say that like. The Hulk has followed me throughout my life. The Hulk is your totem, absolutely. Um, and just one more, more uh, uh, personal question. Who are you making space for now? Uh, I mean, this is 2020 has been a lot, as we all yeah. say. This, this <laughs> pandemic is not, and, the pan, and 2020 is gonna have a sequel in 2021. It ain't like 2021 is a reset button. So, you know, uh, I, I I'm trying to make as much, I, I'm trying not to drive myself crazy. Uh, and that's, I'm not doing a great job of it, but like before we recorded this, like I was recording another, I was recording my podcast, Politically Reactive, and Sammy, who you know, was at the door, knocking on the door and singing the song from Frozen, uh, Do You Want to Build a Snowman? <laughs> which which is literally a song about 
a sister who can't connect to her family member because that family member is locked in a room as her I'm locked in a room working while she wants to connect with me. So in the middle of the podcast, I said, hold on a second. I just went out there just to con- just to be like, I hear you. I'm, I'm right. I'll be out in a little bit. Uh, you know, so I, I don't want her just to be she she sang like I think she sang the song through twice. So I think it's important to even in the midst of all this pressure to get work done to make sure that there's like that I'm doing that it's, it's I have to remind myself to do things for, to be available to my family, even if it's interrupting in my important work, you know, absolutely, absolutely. making space for them. That's yeah, awesome. I love it. So where can people connect with you? Because you have a thousand. What's the best handle? What's the best place to connect with W? If you I'd say Twitter, if you really I'll probably read it. If you if you say something on Twitter, if it passes the quality control filter, whatever that is on Twitter. So that means if you come through with a lot of MFers and in bombs, then I may not get to me. But uh, if you just want to send me messages, I, I, I pay attention. I like the things that I read. So if I liked it, that means I read it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean I liked it. it just means I got it. I see it. But uh, yeah, I'd say at WKMobile on Twitter. And I, I go through periods on Instagram where I'm active. So I will engage with people on those platforms. I, I There's a MySpace, fa- uh, not MySpace. There's a, there's a there was. Facebook. Fa- there was a MySpace. <laughs> I'm not, there's a Facebook fan page that I'm involved with, but I am not on Facebook anymore because I don't enjoy Russians and misinformation and Mark Zuckerberg. But uh, but uh, I know he owns Instagram, but it's different somehow. But yeah, so it's like, I would say at uh, WKMobile on Twitter and Instagram are the two best places. Okay, your two your two fades. I, yeah. I respect that. I respect that, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, this is uh, more than I could ever ask for. So uh, no, it's I'm happy to do it. It's like you said, it's an inside job. <laughs> we, we, we go back. So and you know, I'm hoping that it it inspires people because I truly believe it takes a village. And and you've had a lot of people in your corner and a lot of, mm-hmm. and it's taken you as like Billy Porter says, like 30 years to, to get to this place, like where he was yes. at, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. And I think a lot of people feel like it should. Mm-hmm. Important for and, you know, it's the, what is it? It's getting to the top is one thing, staying there is another, like yeah. that's when the real hard work begins. Not that this is even the top, but just that once you get your spot, other people want your spot. <laughs> like, so you gotta like, you know, and right. you gotta keep reinventing your spot and making yourself more relevant in that spot. Well, author, host, podcaster, I mean, the list goes on. You definitely, you have a few spots on top there, sir. And it's, <laughs> it's incredible. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Good to, good to see you. Good to see you. <laughs>